Oh my. Yeah. All roads lead to a to a an Andy Griffith reference. One way. Yeah, let's not talk about that in here. Hate for us to have to deal with that. Oh my. Uh, we are going to be in Genesis chapter 37 as we continue to look at the life of Joseph. Genesis 37. We're going to pick up in verse 12 tonight because uh, that's where we left off last week. And so that seems appropriate. Let me read my little intro here at the top of the paper, and then we'll read the, we'll read the text. In this scene that we're about to look at here, Joseph's life, uh, of course, it takes a turn for the worse. He is betrayed, nearly killed, cast into slavery, and separated from his family seemingly forever. We see here a case study in human nature, fallen reasoning. In other words, we've talked this morning about how because we have a Genesis 3 mind, because we have a Jeremiah 17 heart, because these things are true, we live, as it were, in the funhouse where everything looks distorted, right? Uh, The things that seem like they make total sense to us many times, it's our wicked heart deceiving us. Um, we, we, We look, we try to survey our lives and... Uh, because of our because of our brokenness, certain things that seem big are actually small. Certain things that should seem small look big to us. Uh, things are distorted. We, we live in a world of smoke and mirrors, it seems like. Because of sinful nature, we're going to see a certain way of thinking makes total sense. Makes total sense to, um, to Joseph's brothers, but it's wicked in God's sight. We see a recapitulation. In other words, it's kind of a retelling of the story of Cain and Abel. As we, and we see a retelling of, uh, of, our, of our old human tendency to cover evil with more evil. Right? That's what Cain and Abel did. That's what Adam and Eve did. Adam and Eve fled from, from the presence of God. They tried to cover their sins. Uh, um, one lie leads to another. One sin leads to a lie, trying to cover the, the first sin. And the same thing happens here in the story of Joseph. At the end of the chapter, we're left wondering, will God redeem the situation? Can it be redeemed? Is this situation beyond hope? And friends, the reality is, situations that seem beyond hope are where God desires to make His glory most seen. When the backdrop is the blackest is when God wants to make His glory look the biggest. And so we're going to see that in Joseph's life. Hopefully it will be an encouragement to you in the situations that you have to navigate. Certainly, I'm certainly clinging to this hope myself. It begins this way in Genesis chapter 37, verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their flock near Shechem. And Israel, of course, um, Jacob, thank you, Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I I am. So he said to him, Go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. Now, you can almost imagine what's going to happen because it seems like Joseph, every time he encounters his brothers, He does something to irritate them, right? So he sent him from the valley of Hebron 
And he came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where, where, are they pass- where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. And he said to them, or, I'm sorry, they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. I need to pause right here. Ben, I wonder if you would help me. That computer that's live streaming this, it just went into screensaver. And I'm afraid that if it goes to sleep, it'll cut off the stream. And so you may just have to kind of sit there and just kind of run your finger across the mouse pad every so often. Sorry about that. Technology. Right in the middle of our Bible. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. So we're talking about premeditated murder here, right? This takes it from second degree to first degree in our criminal justice system. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Uh, Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see uh, what will become of his dreams. And by the way, if it says that it can't show the thing, that's not a problem. Yeah, that, that's not a problem as long as it's still – is the timer still counting? Okay. Figuring out the new system here, which works great, but new things to learn. Uh, let's see. Where was I? 21. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he, might, uh, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. Right, This is the sign of his father's love and affection for him. Seems like it's a little insult to injury. They're getting ready to throw him in a pit, but they got to take this robe, which is really the symbol of, um, of their jealousy. And they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers... What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, uh, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. I'm wondering what, what did he expect? But he tore his clothes, this act of anguish and repentance even, and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and, uh, and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. 
And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn into pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth and, and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So, let's look first at the depth of sin. Right, We're seeing a case study here of human nature. What is human nature capable of? I'm talking, friends, these are the people of God, right? What are even the people of God capable of doing? And this is important because if we don't recognize that we ourselves are capable of dark black sin, then we might actually slide into it easier. If we think, oh, I would never. I think the proper response for believers, when we look at the depth of our sin, when we look at the blackness of our hearts, we can say, you know what, I wouldn't put it past me. I'm capable. I'm capable of engaging in willing sin. So there's this premeditated murder that occurs here. Uh, or at, at least that's what they plotted. They didn't carry it out. But they, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. So this, the brothers, they, they engage in this willful, cooperating sin. It's reminiscent of Adam and Eve. Adam joined with his wife, right? They, they joined together to kind of sin together. One person has told me, um, nothing drives two people apart quicker than sinning together. Nothing drives people apart quicker than sinning together. That's what happened with Adam and Eve. It's what happened with these brothers. Of course, we'll see as the story develops and unfolds, these brothers become divided themselves. They start blaming one another for, for their lot and what has happened to them. So where was Adam's leadership back in the garden? Where was Adam's leadership um, he was passive. He allowed his wife to eat. He, he gave his approval of it. And then he engaged in that sin with Eve. Uh, he just kind of took a back seat and he uh, let down his guard. Where was his leadership? It was missing. Again, where are the voices here of the older brothers? Where are the voices of reason? Where are the voices of wisdom here? I mean, you know, there, there are 11 of them. And only one of them can kind of pipe up and say, Hey, why don't we not sin quite so bad? Why don't we still sin, but just kind of do it in a less intense way? It seems like there's a, just a lack of leadership, a lack of integrity. And indeed, this is what is called a compromise with evil. Compromise with evil. It says this is what happened. When Reuben heard it, this is verse 21, Reuben almost seems like a, a savior figure here. He almost seems like the, the voice of reason, but then we... We learn as the story develops, it's not quite what's happening. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands. You know, some, some rescue, right? Rescued them out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. It seems like we know exactly what Reuben was thinking he would do. He was thinking that he could compromise with evil a little bit. He could reason with evil. And then maybe later he can come back to the pit and figure everything else out. Save his brother later. 
Because, abs- because uh, of course, we come to find out that's what he does. He returns to the pit and then he's horrified to find that his brother's not there. So the moral of the story here is that evil is not, is, is not handled by trying to reason with it. Evil is handled by confronting it and by confronting it with the truth of the gospel. That's what I think we can learn from this. Judah, of all people, of course Judah we learn later in the book, Judah is the one through whom the Savior is going to come. And here Judah is not cast as a very admirable character. He's not given to us, he's not presented to us as someone that we want to imitate. And, and you know, actually, when Whitney and I, um, when we decided to name Judah, Judah, you know, someone actually brought this up. And they said, you know, there are some real times in the Bible when Judah is actually not someone that you want to imitate. And we said, you know what? That's actually the point. Because Judah is not special because he himself is righteous. He's special because he has a God who forgave him, right? We don't look to ourselves for any reason that we're good. The only reason that we are considered good before God is because of the finished work of somebody else, because of Jesus. So God uses Judah, a broken vessel. He uses Judah, a person who displayed some real evil, in his life, but used Judah to send his Savior into the world. It's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel for us. And if God can use Judah to do such a work, then I think that we can we can rest assured that he will use us broken vessels as well, as it says in the New Testament. Uh, jars of clay. So, let's see. Reuben seeks not to oppose evil, but to try to mitigate it a little bit. Judah, I mean, I'm sorry, Reuben wants to try to just turn the dial down a little bit. Uh, Reuben's conscience, uh, we need to talk about Reuben's conscience and the brother's sin. You see, Reuben is an example of someone who realizes evil is going on, but tries to compromise with it instead of confronting it. His conscience is clearly bothering him, right? He runs back to the pit. His conscience is clearly bothering him. He tries to reason with his brothers. He returns to the pit. And then later in the book, he chastises his brothers as they themselves feel this collective guilt. I want to read uh, for you from Genesis 42. You, You are free to turn there if you'd like to Genesis 42. I mentioned this in the past, but it's really fully in view now. Genesis 42, 21. This is when, later in the story, Joseph is second in command over Egypt and his brothers have come to him. His brothers don't recognize him. Verse 21, they said to one another, In truth we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen, so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. In other words, later in the book, all his brothers are in a fix. They're in a bad spot. They're about to run out of food. They're, they're at risk of dying by starvation. And what is it that their mind goes to? Their mind goes to the old sin that they committed. 
all these years later. So many years have passed that their brother has grown, probably become more properly bearded. They can't recognize him, and they still remember what they did to their brother because it doesn't leave the knowledge of that guilt. It doesn't leave. And they can't help but think the reason we're in this fix is because of what we did in the past. This guilt needs to be reckoned with. There's also a twisting of evil. Judah, I think I started on this a second ago and running in circles tonight. Don't know where my head is, folks. Hopefully it's making sense to y'all. Judah, of all people, conspires to to profit off of their, their evil intent. Verses 25 through 29 says this. And they sat down to eat. Imagine just being able to sit down and have a a meal after you've just cast your brother into a pit where he could thirst to death. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and... Let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. This is weird, weird logic. It's weird logic. It's our brother. How can we kill him? Sell him into slavery. Strange logic. Friends, it only makes sense in a Genesis 3 world. It only makes sense if you have a Jeremiah 17, 9 heart. Have you ever heard this phrase? Whatever the heart desires, the mind can justify. Have you ever heard that? Whatever it is the heart desires, your mind can figure out a way to make it seem like it makes sense. Right? We've got to be on guard. We've got to be on guard against that. And his brothers listened to him. The Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up. This is an interesting phrase. They drew him up out of a, out of a pit. Drew, it's like you draw water out of a well. They, they drew him up and lift him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took him to Egypt. So, Judah, of all people, he conspires to profit off their evil intent. This highlights the grace of God toward a figure like Judah. It's not because of Judah's righteousness that he has chosen to be the line of the Savior. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 9. Do not say in your heart, this is God talking to Israel. He's telling them why they're the chosen people. Actually, he's telling them why they're not the chosen people. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has has thrust the peoples, has thrust them out before you. Do not say it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it, is, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these other nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Do Not because of your righteousness or uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land. In other words, he's telling the people of God, when you get into the land, don't think it's because of something that you did. Don't think it's because of the good. Don't think I looked down and I saw, oh, the people of Israel, look how good they are in their heart. I think I'll pick them to be on my team. He says, don't make that mistake. But because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you, and that he may, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to his fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. In other words, God's saying roughly something like this. I made a promise to you. And the only reason that I'm doing this is to make good on my promise, to get glory for myself. And, and if I can get rid of some wicked nations while I'm at it, fine, that's great. It's a little shorthand, Greg Mathis translation of what's going on here. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not, as if they didn't get it, by the way, as if they didn't get the picture a couple of verses ago. He says this in bold, 
on your papers. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Friends, this is not just a story about Israel. This is a story about us. Do not say, if you find yourself today in Christ, do not say it is because of your righteousness. It is because God desires to get his glory through your life. It is because Jesus was righteous on your behalf. And God opened the eyes of our hearts. Do not say it is because of some goodness in us. Next, the brothers cover their tracks. Reuben begins to have second thoughts, verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? He's he's ridden with grief and fear. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered the goat and dipped the blood Uh, dip the robe in the blood. The brothers conspire to deceive. Oh, what tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Sorry, couldn't remember that for a second. So, application. That's in an Andy Griffith... ah, That's in an Andy Griffith episode too. Um, Application. Here's what we should learn from this. We should be aware of our own ability to justify what we want. Okay? Our hearts often want things that are not good for us. We've got to be on guard because our minds are standing ready and willing to justify whatever our heart desires. When I go to bed at night, I have these grand plans. These grand plans of waking up at 5 o'clock in the morning... Got my coffee already made, ready for me just to hit the button, right? It was made the night before. I'm ready to go in there in the quietness of the kitchen when there are no toddlers making racket and have myself a nice little quiet time and do some study and just get a great jump on the day so that when I come into the office at about 8.30, I feel like I'm already a mile ahead of the curve. Got these grand plans of doing this. I want my, my boys to wake up and to walk into the kitchen seeing their daddy read the Bible. That's what I want them to see when they get older. And then the alarm goes off at 5 o'clock in the morning. And oh boy, man, my mind can justify what my heart desires. Greg, you had a rough day yesterday. Greg, you preached twice. I can hear, I, I, this is what's going to happen tomorrow morning. Greg, you, you preached twice yesterday. Take it easy on yourself, right? And next thing you know, the finger starts making a beeline for that little snooze button, right? Your mind can justify whatever the heart desires. Secondly, are we tempted to mitigate sin instead of rooting it out? Are you tempted to try to contain sin, right? Containment's never a good strategy. It doesn't work with communism. It doesn't work with sin, right? Containment just doesn't seem to work. Are we tempted to mitigate sin instead of rooting it out? John Owen says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. John Owen. So, all of this is all well and good, but friends, I've got, I've got to tell you, this last part, I'm really excited about. I hope you will be as well. Joseph is a type of Christ. I don't know if you picked up some of the little references that the Bible writers were dropping 
in Genesis 37. But Joseph is a forerunner. He's a shadow. He's, a, he's kind of a picture of Christ before Christ comes. So a type, it doesn't mean a kind of. It means, it means you know, like um, I used to take Motor Trend magazine when I was in high school. And they were always, different car companies were coming out with prototypes of, of what they might produce one day. And I remember way back in high school, the prototypes of the Ford Bronco were, were back in the magazines even 10 and 15 years ago, and now they've just rolled one out. It's amazing. But that's a, the shadow of what might be true one day. And so Joseph is a shadow. He's a type of what's to come. Christ is the reality. Joseph is the shadow. Christ is the reality. Look at this. It seems that the Bible considers Joseph a type of Christ. Stephen saw Joseph as an example of a long line of disobedience by the Israelites. If you look in in Acts, and I'll just read this to you um, real quick. In Acts chapter 7, verse 9, it says this, And the patriarchs, this this is where Stephen is preaching to his fellow Jews. And what happens at the end of this sermon? His fellow Jews don't like it. They stone him to death, right? Stephen is is killed for this message. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom with Pharaoh. And it also says in in verse 51, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? In other words, God sent prophets to all of your fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers. And every time He sent a prophet to tell you what you needed to hear, instead of listening to what the prophet said, you ran the prophet out of town. Right? I know churches that do that to pastors, right? In other words, God sends them a pastor. He tries to tell them what they need to hear. And instead of accepting what God wants them to hear, they just run the pastor out, right? Churches do this all the time. It says this, which of, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, who you received uh, the law, you who received the law and as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And then the very next paragraph is entitled, if your Bible has like a little heading, this is the stoning of Stephen. Right? In other words, God sent you... Remember the example of Joseph? Look how your fathers were hard-hearted back then. For Stephen, Joseph demonstrated the hard hearts of God's people. Stephen made clear how the Israelites seemed to always dislike hearing God's prophets, even up to Jesus, right? Jesus was the last prophet that God sent. He was prophet, priest, and king. God sent His very own Son, and they killed Him too. And for telling the truth, Stephen was stoned out of that same hard heart. I want to tell you a few parallels. Joseph was betrayed by the very ones that he was meant to save. Remember, Joseph comes back later and he saves his brothers by giving them grain so that the promises of God can continue, so that Judah doesn't starve to death, so that the the line can continue through through, uh, Judah. Joseph was sent and he was was, uh, betrayed and they tried to kill him. He was betrayed by the very ones that God sent him to save. In the same way, Jesus was betrayed by his brothers, his, his, his family, the Jewish people. Jesus was, betray, was betrayed by the very ones that he came to save. Joseph was stripped of his special robe. 
Jesus was stripped of his clothes and was given a robe in jest, out of a joke, right? It says, it says in, um, in Matthew 27, 28, that they, they stripped Jesus' uh, clothes from him and then gave him a robe. It's interesting. Joseph was stripped of a robe. Jesus was given a robe. Joseph was sold for 20 shekels of silver, verse 28 it says. Jesus was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He's trying to send us all these signals that Joseph is a shadow of Christ, right? He came, he was betrayed by the very ones that he was intended to save. Joseph is a Christ figure. This is how how we would, would speak. The last point to make is God's plan of salvation. Judah is seen here as no hero. Indeed, he conspires against the hero of the story, Joseph. But God never has saved on the basis of righteousness in us. He always saves based on the display of his own glory. That's the point of Ephesians chapter 2. If you just read Ephesians chapter 2. Here's the application. We learn from this that God has a place for the Judas and the Josephs. Joseph wasn't the chosen one for God's big plan. But God used him in the same big plan in a huge way. Friends, maybe you feel insignificant. Maybe you feel like three generations from now, nobody will even remember your name. Well, friends, it doesn't matter because God still intends to use you and your life for the sake of the gospel. And he will do it if you submit yourself to him. Secondly and lastly, the emphasis isn't on the people or their characters but on the God over the story. In other words, the emphasis isn't on Judah or Joseph. They're just they're, they're cogs in God's story. In other words, you, you don't, we don't look to Joseph and give him a bunch of praise for everything he did right. We don't look to Judah and give him you know, praise or scorn based on whether he was doing well or right. Instead, we look through these characters to see God. We don't read Romeo and Juliet and think, man, Romeo was really sharp, right? Because he's just a character in the play. We look through Romeo and Juliet and we see Shakespeare. And we give him glory for creating a magnificent story, right? In the same way, the point is not Joseph. The point is not Reuben. The point is not Judah. The point is the God behind the story who saves people, not based on their righteousness, but based on the finished work of Christ. And friends, let's give him praise for that. That it's not because of any good that we did, but because God desires to save sinners for himself. And if you're a sinner, like me, it's good news. That's good news. I'm going to pray and we'll have a closing song. Is that we won't tonight have a closing song. Now, you know, that's um, could could you just play a little something for for a moment while we um, while we just reflect on this? If you'd like, if you need to talk to me, I'm available. If you need to talk to me afterwards, I'm available. Um, but we're just going to take a couple of moments here and just reflect on the Word of God. And I would ask you in the quietness of your hearts just to pray and ask what uh, the Lord might intend, uh, how He might intend for you to respond from God's Word tonight. Let's pray together.